You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. So I'm Brian Williams, and this is The Small Print. And today we have with us as a guest, Valina Chakrova. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. And to start off with, we always like to just ask our guests to introduce themselves the way they would like to be introduced on this show. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me uh, on your show. It's a great pleasure being uh, with you and discussing my most favorite topics. So um, I am a di the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy based in Vienna. And I have uh, 10 years of professional experience and uh, additionally seven years of, ex of academic background in the field of uh, foreign security and defense policy. Um, my main field of research and work uh, is focused on uh, global trends, um, scenarios and uh, risks. So I work with both public and private clients and uh, I apply an approach that is very much derived from systems thinking and realpolitik. Fantastic. So this show that we have, The Small Print, is really about equipping citizens and consumers, that is everyday people, to have the vocabulary, the knowledge and understanding about the issues that are unfolding from a policy perspective that are going to impact their lives as citizens and as consumers going forward. So we try to take those complicated sort of policy wonky ideas and make them relevant to people that are going to have to live through the consequences of those choices. And a few weeks ago, we had Ronak Gopaldis, who is an economic a political scientist that basically looks at security risk across Africa. And our conversation there was really about how the African Union is going to be changing the lives of African nation states and African citizens. And very quickly in that conversation, it becomes apparent that geopolitics is exactly that, a global game, and that you definitely can't look at the sort of future of Africa and the African Union without understanding what is going on in the wider world. And that's why we wanted to bring you on, because you obviously have that even more macro perspective of what's going on in the world and how that new, new world order is shaping up. Because really from our perspective, and of course, geopolitics is not my primary focus, I'm more of a sort of a general futurist and more of coming from it more from an economic background too. It, it really is appearing to us that a, a new, new world order is emerging. The world of Henry Kissinger, the way the world was carved up really in the shape of the United States empire's image is shifting. And it could go in several different directions from here. And from our perspective in Africa, it definitely does seem to us that there are choices to be made as the youngest continent in the world as to what sort of world order, what sort of ideology we want to be aligning with in the future, because that's what those are the choices that we make that are going to define the world over the next century, over the next few hundred years. So my first question to you would be, do you agree with that assessment? Are we having a shakeup in the global world order? And if so, what are those really big macro trends that are unfolding right now? Well, thank you for this really exciting introduction. And I want to make one clarification, which is that I only provide one specific uh, view. It's uh, what I call this uh, 30,000 feet macro view on the world, on global affairs, 
which is also based on my global system concept. But this is just one way how to look at global affairs. And you can apply, of course, different approaches, uh, more uh, bottom-up uh, oriented ones that can provide you additional layers of understanding how this world uh, operates. So, like I said, it's going to be very much global system oriented um, in the next, I suppose, uh, one hour of discussion. But on the other side, take these uh, views and assessments as just one way of explaining the world and not as the only and sole uh, truth, so to say. Now, uh, mega trends and global trends are definitely one of my uh, specialty. And I think that we right now are living in the most exciting times ever in the last 2000 years. So uh, given all the different uh, cycles and um, uh, trends, uh, and I will unpack them a little bit later for you. I think that right now what we are experience, uh, experiencing uh, is probably one of the most, uh, um, so to say, systemic uh, shifts and changes. And if I take one example, for our audience, um, as a comparison, if uh, the global financial crisis from 2007 and 2008 was, so to say, uh, the most significant uh, global structural uh, change, so to say, now the global system uh, change is going to actually take place in all relevant socioeconomic networks. And we definitely have no idea what the outcome of these changes will be. We can have, uh, we can have some uh, predictions, we can uh, develop some uh, trend scenarios, but we certainly have no idea about the outcome. And this is what makes it so exciting. Um, I would start with a claim that the a most unexpected manifestation of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is uh, definitely the bifurcation of the global order in a way unseen uh, since the Cold War. So since uh, basically the end of the Cold War. So for me personally, it begs the question, is the world uh, witnessing a new bipolar era of global co power competition or uh, is the majority of international relations experts uh, correct by predicting that it's going to be a multipolarity? And I am actually sharing the view that we are going to witness increasingly a situation of global system bipolarity. So I would start with it uh, with this claim, and now I will give the floor back to you if you want to ask additional questions related to this. Sure, yes. So let's talk about that bipolarity. When you talk about that, what is that division that you're seeing across the world? Because it's not as simple as it used to be. When we spoke about the sort of the capitalist world versus the communist world previously in the last century, or we spoke about north and south or developed versus developing or east versus west. It seems to me that this new polarity is going to be a little bit more complicated and the alliances that are sort of polarizing on those two poles that you speak about are going to be a little bit more tenuous. Perhaps they're going to be more sort of interesting bedfellows on either end of the, of the bed, so to speak. So can you maybe just define what your view is? And of course, obviously with the disclaimer that this is a view, looking at how you see that new split shaping up, what is going to be that ultimate division between the two this time around? 
Okay, so um, I would start uh, first and foremost by basing my claims and analysis and assessment on, like I said, right from the beginning, a realpolitik approach. Realpolitik is basically a branch of the political science, international relations, um, global affairs, that um, actually claims that uh, power, power politics, um, power games and struggle for power, be it uh, global, regional or national, is the true motor of global affairs. So it's, a main, it's also the main driver now for the systemic decoupling between the United States and uh, China. And uh, is also a main trigger for this kind of uh, global power um, shift from the Atlantic uh, to the Indo-Pacific uh, realm. Um, so first uh, uh, important um, information is that uh, the globalization uh, which was the last globalization cycle, because right now we are in a deglobalization cycle. So the last globalization cycle prior to the global financial crisis um, basically created an unintended outcome, which, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, the interconnection of uh, all socioeconomic networks, which once again were facilitated uh, by the United States together with uh, their allies and partners throughout the last 70 years uh, during the Cold War competition with the Soviet Union. And once the Soviet Union actually imploded uh, and uh, basically withdrew from the superpower competition, the uh, United States could actually facilitate this uh, existent uh, socioeconomic networks on their own, like I said, together with other allies and partners. And this was basically um, the, the, the unintended uh, outcome, which, was, which resulted in uh, the rise of China as a second, uh, second uh, pole of uh, power or second system of uh, power. Why? Because uh, it was the United States that decided uh, on the entanglement of China uh, within the US dominated networks. It was a decision during the 70s um, to create counterbalance to the Soviet Union and their satellites. And uh, it, like I said, the unintended consequence of this decision of this chimerical phenomenon, which was built uh, for more than 30 years, of uh, really unprecedented uh, systemic coordination. And like I said, of unprecedented uh, entanglement within uh, financial, monetary, trade, economic, uh, energy, uh, diplomatic, uh, so basically international organizations, uh, networks. Um, so the uninten unintended uh, consequence of it was that uh, China uh, got uh, this unique uh, opportunity to rise on its own. Uh, so, of course, China is now seizing the opportunity to become the first Asian global power in the modern international relations. Um, and uh, this global rise, and that's the interesting part, was primarily determined by the out, will be primarily de determined by the outcome of the current industrial revolution and also by its capacities to establish own 
socioeconomic global networks. So these are the two goals right now. Uh, and why do I mention uh, the industrial revolution? Because this was a decisive moment, so to say, uh, for the United States to win the competition uh, against uh, Soviet Union in the 70s, in the middle of the third industrial revolution. This was the decisive uh, element for uh, global power projections. And the very same happened also with Great Britain when they were the, on, their, on their way to establishing uh, global networks during the first and the second industrial revolution. So we are right now, uh, once again, in a very unique uh, situation because the, all of this is happening in front of our eyes um, and we don't know the outcome, who is going to be the winner of this uh, fourth industrial revolution, who is going to manage the major technological breakthroughs. Uh, and we have these two competitors. So um, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an open game. It's very much based on, uh, on real, real competition, even though that uh, we are still, um, well, we are still um, observing a lot behind the curtains that we have to, uh, well, speculate on. Um, and I'll stop here um, because I suppose that we are going to analyze the role of regional powers a little bit later, later on. Yeah, exactly. So it's quite interesting what you're saying there in terms of the, the determination as to what world order, what world view takes prominence going forward. You kind of look at, got to look at those two, those two angles, the one being the competition element or the market-based element, the fourth industrial revolution, like you say, and the other one being the connection element or more in terms of forming alliances with who gets to play with who and how can you win people over or force people over onto your worldview. I think that looking at China in particular, they've been very, very successful in a, quite a short period of time. And a lot of that was, of course, due to their population growth and deregulating parts of their, their marketplaces. But a lot of those sort of easy wins have started to reverse. So they're getting to the point where population growth is no longer a plus on that column, for example. And a lot of the easy growth that comes from just simply opening up your markets becomes then hard growth that you have to do something else with if you want to talk about it from an economic perspective. You have to look at new ways to expand. And we're definitely starting to see things like that with, with China looking to form alliances willingly or less willingly with various different powers across, across the world right now. So you can look at that in terms of economic ties, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative, or in terms of sort of military sort of noises that are taking place right now. From your perspective, we are talking about a sort of a two polar world with a sort of a US world order on the one hand and the China world order on the other hand, who are the sort of collateral countries in between? What are the key alliances that are going to be shaping up to determine those two themes, so to speak? Where is China looking for influence, looking to bring people into that fold to keep that growth going? Because it is so essential to have both the, the numbers in terms of, in terms of connections, and in terms of the profits themselves that come from industrial growth. Okay, you start. You mentioned already uh, China's uh, Silk Road, and I will start with uh, actually unpacking uh, this uh, ambitious uh, geoeconomic project that China launched in 2013. And moving from there, I will also explain why China is trying right now to engage with certain countries along the Silk Roads. Now, uh, the Silk Roads, the Asian Silk Roads, we've 
uh, known from the time of uh, the Great Roman Empire, which actually became an empire thanks to its um, tremendous connectivity, um, transport, uh, transport and trade routes uh, established from the wider Mediterranean and Northern Africa, Middle East, and then connecting uh, the empire with the rest of the world. So basically nothing new. Uh, if we look at the map, uh, what China is right now trying to do is, uh, is uh, basically creating terrestrial and uh, maritime routes, transport, trade, energy routes. So basically creating its own connectivity uh, and uh, this goes on the one side through Central Asia and uh, most, most importantly Russia, but also uh, right now key regional actors such as uh, Iran and even Turkey, connecting uh, this terrestrial connectivity routes with uh, Europe through the Black uh, Sea area. And of course, uh, the final destination is nothing less than the industrial heart of Europe, uh, based in uh, Germany, France, uh, Netherlands, Italy, and of course, United King Kingdom, which is, of course, a very special case. Uh, but then again, uh, there is also an alternative uh, route, a maritime one, and uh, a an additional terrestrial connectivity goes uh, basically now through Pakistan and uh, opens the gates uh, to the Indian Ocean uh, through the port of Badr. So basically, Pakistan is another key uh, key uh, dot on China's Europe's map. And the maritime route is nothing less than uh, the those uh, US still very much US controlled. Uh, uh, maritime routes that see more than 80% of the global trade taking place uh, on a daily basis, uh, uh, which also go uh, coincidentally along the most important global choke points, connecting Europe, the Mediterranean area, the Red Sea, the, the, uh, the Persian Gulf, the Indian, the wider Indian uh, Ocean, so the Indo-Pacific uh, um, area. Uh, and uh, why are they so important? Because uh, these global choke points are also the, the ones uh, very much important and significant for food and energy supply. So, of course, uh, China will be looking for uh, solidifying its uh, maritime presence in these Pacific regions as well, because it's very much energy dependent um, uh, and specifically dependent on a certain energy supply from these uh, regions. And this is also one way how uh, China can also connect itself uh, to with, with uh, Africa and then moving uh, forward even to Latin America. Now, along the Silk Roads, like I said, you will find uh, many regional um, partners uh, that are members, so to say, of different uh, different uh, Silk Roads projects. Uh, Belt and Road Initiative is actually the, the new name. Uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, projects. Uh, and uh, if you want to find out where China places its most in, uh, most the most important geoeconomic focus on, uh, you will identify them very easily on the map. Now. Looking uh, at uh, the at the opposite perspective, um, you will find, of course, at uh, the epicenter, United States once again, 
uh, trying to come up with uh, new strategies, approaches, ideas, how to engage old partners uh, and win new partners uh, to build a significant counterbalance uh, to this increasing Chinese presence uh, beyond uh, Asia, beyond the Asian realm. And like I said at the beginning, uh, due to the fact that China is right now in this unique position to become the first Asian global power, I would like to also unpack this a little bit uh, for uh, for our uh, viewers and listeners uh, that uh, you should look at uh, the map uh, from China's perspective that on the one side, uh, you can build this uh, regional uh, supremacy through these uh, connectivities uh, in uh, Central Asia, but also in, meanwhile in uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia anyway. Uh, so make, making you a heartland, so to say. I mean, take the example of the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was this kind of heartland uh, superpower. Uh, and uh, on the other side, you need also to build counterweight to the U.S. Uh, dominance uh, in the seas and in the oceans. And how are you going to do this? Of course, you're going to look at uh, connectivities in your direct vicinity. Uh, so south is the China, of course, uh, seas, uh, and then you take the Indian Ocean, uh, the wider uh, Indo-Pacific uh, area, and you start building there. And uh, you're looking for ports also. Meanwhile, there are such ports also in, uh, in uh, the Mediterranean uh, area. So you basically are looking for opportunities to uh, also build your uh, maritime presence. And uh, what we are going to observe on the side of the so-called Western alliances initiatives, they will be very much US dominated, but not necessarily, because right now we have a lot of regional constellations uh, built around various uh, various actors, uh, actors' interests. Uh, take uh, one example, such as the quadrilateral format, which is not a bureaucratized uh, initiative, but it's uh, happening at the highest le political level. Uh, that, that means it's also very, very uh, efficient in decision-making and it's quick in taking decisions. Um, and this one is, for instance, uh, facilitated uh, by India, Japan, and Australia together with the United States. We are going to find uh, similar initiatives coming from the what is now being described as the Anglosphere of uh, influence, of global influence, uh, basically being based on uh, the old networks of the UK and United States, of course, but in with an increasing participation by new regional actors that have now gained more importance in Southeast Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, of course, with India being such, a, such an example, but of course also Japan, Australia, uh, and of course, some of the European powers will have to, will have to take also a decision to be more, uh, you know, to be more, more um, to to engage in a more uh, particular manner uh, in such uh, such formats. But the European powers also have also come up with some ideas, uh, guidelines, and strategies how to engage more in the Indo-Pacific area. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So when it comes to actually building those those networks and those outposts and, and creating that whole, whether you want to call it the, the Belt and Road or the Silk Road or whatever America is trying to do from the from the Washington side of the world, there there's really two ways you can kind of persuade your your allies to to join your version of the future. And that's either through sort of force or through favor, through some sort of persuasion. So I think I want to ask you, what are the what are the what's really the deal on the table for the case of those so-called sort of geopolitical swing votes, the countries that could choose to align with either of these world orders. What is the offer on the table coming from Beijing in compare, to compare and contrast with that offer on the table coming from maintaining the US's world order as it is right now? What are the key differences in forming alliances with each of those two sides of the world? I mean, I know from my perspective to sort of oversimplify some of these things, one of those differences would be that the US-based world order is much more of a, say, an equity-based order, whereas the Chinese order is a lot more of a debt order from an economic perspective, for example. Are there more of those, those points that you could unpack for us? What is actually being offered or what is under threat from either cooperating or not cooperating with those two different versions of the future? Well, it's, uh, I find it always very striking that, uh, in fact, uh, a lot uh, of experts, uh, but also um, it's a common view, so to say, uh, go for this line that, uh, you know, uh, United States is a hegemon and, uh, I mean, hegemon is, uh, of course, not well perceived. But on the other side, uh, com the direct comparison as if China would be a similar hegemon is something that I find really striking. Because one thing uh, should be absolutely clear that uh, once China gets the chance of uh, global supremacy, uh, that would mean that uh, Beijing uh, is going to be the winner uh, out of the fourth industrial revolution. It's going to decide over global rules, norms, um, regulations and values and so on and so forth. And I think that this is something that is, hasn't arrived in the mind of many people. Uh, so of course, uh, the winner always decides over, over, uh, over this kind of things uh, and has That's an it. own idea about, about how the world how the global system uh, with its uh, international and regional structures uh, has to be facilitated. And this has, uh, has been actually the case for, for the last 70 years. Once um, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the United States took over and uh, continued with, uh, with, with their, uh, their inter institutional um, leverage. Uh, so, we should ask the question: What kind of um, what kind of an alternative global system facilitated by China would look like? This is always the first question I ask, and I mostly don't receive a, a clear answer to it. Uh, but my idea is uh, the following: um, uh, I have um, four four um, vectors when I when I try to assess uh, this kind of uh, this kind of systemic uh, changes. The one is, of course, the political economy, the most important one, the most decisive one for who is going to exercise power over whom. Uh, the second is, of course, global norms and, uh, and rules, uh, standards and values. 
of course. That means the whole plethora of international regional organizations, who dominates them, who sets the agenda, and so on and so forth. Then the third one is, of course, alliances, alliances, partnerships. How, how do you forge alliances? With what kind of, as, you, as you've asked in the question, with what kind of uh, portfolio? <laughs> what, what are the incentives behind, uh, uh, behind uh, this? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and finally, of course, the technological breakthroughs. I mean, are you capable of really... Uh, being a technological uh, technological superpower because we, without this layer, I mean, technology is only a means to an end. And, uh, you know, your, your ultimate goal is, of course, um, maximizing your power. Now, going back to your question, first and foremost, I, I um, want to stress that the only uh, power with global power capabilities right now uh, is the United States. They are the only uh, state actor um, capable of projecting global power and capable of actually controlling uh, global supply chains, uh, controlling uh, transport and trade routes, facilitating these networks, or if they decide they can also let uh, networks collapse, just to give you an idea, like take, for instance, the global monetary system. The global monetary system right now is actually uh, kept afloat thanks to the Federal Reserve interventions. Okay, uh, so in order to uh, to to <laughs> to have this uh, global power cap uh, capabilities, uh, I mean, uh, you certainly need uh, all of these uh, four vectors that I've mentioned. Okay, and China is on its way, but you know, on becoming this kind of second system uh, power, but. Um, it's not there yet. Like I said, we don't know exactly whether China will manage the fourth to become, to come out as a winner of uh, the fourth industrial revolution. China is still struggling in forging solid and loyal alliances and partnerships. Most of them, as you mentioned, are based actually on incentives derived from the Belt and Road Initiatives. Okay, so uh, huge amounts of liquidity are being you know, promised, mm. but uh, the way how China approaches uh, regions and countries is very much different uh, from what, uh, for instance, uh, other regional powers or, for instance, United States do. And to give, you gave an example with uh, indebtedness. Um, right now, for instance, uh, we have a European case with Montenegro, uh, European uh, integration candidate. Uh, that actually uh, has been trapped in this kind of uh, debt, uh, debt, debt question, um, basically due to the fact that they entered a deal with China, which now they are not uh, capable of, uh, of uh, as actually not, they are not capable of uh, repaying the loan they took from China for this infrastructure project. So, um, it's a it's a definitely a very different uh, way of how uh, China approaches uh, regions. They go enter, bring in their own uh, workforce, their own uh, companies, um, um, build the infrastructure, be it a highway or you know any other connectivity project, 
uh, and usually they stay. And now the major question, of course, is which I raised uh, already years ago, why uh, um, we should that we should assume that uh, once these infrastructure projects are also being built, uh, they have to be securitized. And of course, this will be done by Chinese, uh, either Chinese private security companies, or we will see boots on the ground at some point. Um, you know, with the explanation, this is a huge uh, infrastructure project, a huge investment for China. So we need to, uh, you know, make sure that uh, this uh, is uh, going to be also secure. Secu a secured project for us. Take the example with Myanmar, where uh, China has uh, energy interests, uh, it has built pipelines, uh, both in oil and uh, gas. Um, and uh, now there are announcements that they have to protect uh, these pipelines because of uh, the situation in Myanmar. And this is something that is going to increasingly be happening, uh, you know, um, in other parts of the region. What the West uh, has been doing, uh, of course, is that uh, there is this specific layer of norms, international norms, standards, and, uh, and rules. And of course, you have also the international organizations and structures which facilitate uh, this uh, set of norms and uh, rules. And um, one major, um, I mean, gap, which I see is, for instance, or as a potential one, doesn't have to happen, of course, is that uh, European powers are very much um, uh, linked to the, uh, to the European Union institutions, which of course uh, have their own uh, rule of law, very similar, of course, to the Western ideas, but we have, of course, our institutional layer in decision-making, whereas, um, uh, United States and also other uh, partners such as uh, Great Britain and other um, countries from the from the uh, from 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 uh, from the previous um, networks uh, of the United Kingdom uh, have very much um, this Anglo-Saxon um, rules and uh, standards and law, and I think that maybe this could be uh, one one gap in um, you know, getting a coherent approach um, as a counterbalance to China, where you will find that uh, certain countries which are easily dealing with, uh, you know, with the Anglo-Saxon uh, way of, uh, you know, of uh, doing business and uh, um, getting into new relations and alliances, which is quicker, easier to facilitate and so on and so forth. Whether the European way of decision-making is, as we saw also during the pandemic, quite slow, it's a heavy process. You have two fault layers, you have the European Union institutions, it's a huge bureaucracy uh, machinery. And then you have, of course, the European powers, uh, basically the French, uh, German and Chine behind the European integration. And that makes the process slower, heavier and uh, less efficient, uh, specifically when it comes to crisis and uh, crisis management. That might be one potential you know, conflict in the future that will actually Kind of, kind of um, create a dividing line between uh, Western partners. 
Yeah, that's an interesting place to sort of pick up on there because I did want to unpack a little bit further with you the, the role that you see going forward if it is going to be a China versus US type world for two particular sort of regional groupings. The one being the European Union, which as you have indicates it has its own fragility in and amongst its bureaucracy as to what's likely to happen there, how are they going to end up splitting sharing power between the, the different parts of the world. And the other one being the, the BRICS nations, the emerging markets nations, are they going to be aligning closer to Beijing or is there a valid viable reason why they would reject the Beijing consensus on the future? And I think the big pivots there would of course be India, which is probably the only sort of sizable credible threat to, that even has the ability to resist a sort of an offer based either on fear or force or favor coming from, from Beijing right now. So maybe you can just unpack those those two as, as separate ideas. And I've spoken a bit about Europe, but what happens with Europe in this bipolar world? And then what is likely to happen with the emerging markets? And we can just talk about the BRICS because obviously emerging markets is a, is a huge thing, but I'm quite interested in that bigger global picture rather than just what's going on around China, South, South Asia Sea. Well, from a geopolitical and geoeconomic point of view, uh, I see this new great uh, game emerging and being predominantly situated in uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, region. This is why I called it also the Indo-Pacific decade. So um, countries that are situated in the vicinity of the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, uh, are going to witness this kind of rising competition between the two Asian giants, as you mentioned, the, uh, basically China and now India, with India being projected to becoming uh, the third economic uh, power in the world in the next uh, decade, uh, probably even, even uh, quicker now with uh, this new kind of acceleration of partnerships with uh, United States and other like-minded countries. Um, and uh, that means, of course, that all hot, most of the hotspots, most of the triggers are going to be um, to, to, to take place also in, uh, in, 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 in these areas. So you take South, East China Seas, you take Indian Ocean, you take the Mediterranean, the Caspian, the Black Sea, you take the North African, the East African coast, you take uh, Middle East and this is the this is this what I call the great zone between two systemic rivals, you know, uh, and their uh, and their blocks and uh, you know uh, partnerships uh, alliances. So all 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 these uh, kind of um, tensions, uh, not necessarily uh, only military tensions. Uh, or conflicts, but also uh, all uh, the full spectrum of, uh, you know, of uh, competition and rivalry and, um, you know, conflicts is going to be observed more, more or less in this, uh, in this gray area. Uh, now, uh, going back to your question, uh, you know, how China is approaching uh, alliances and then, of course, the role of BRICS I, if, I, if I correctly understood you, you want to uh, specifically um, know more about the BRICS. I hope that I acoustically, uh, acoustically got yes, it. Yes, yes. Right, yes. Well, um, India, Russia. Yes, of course. Africa, so, so, of course, uh, like in nature, like in nature, states are also mimicking very much what's uh, successful formulas. 
And uh, like I mentioned, uh, these four vectors where you can actually see uh, how the systemic uh, rivalry is taking place. And, uh, you know, they, they are very helpful to assess uh, the ongoing shifts and changes. Um, the one which is uh, based on international uh, organizations, regional organizations, uh, is quite um, indicative of uh, what China has been doing in the last uh, 10, 15 years, basically mimicking the United States uh, institutional uh, leverage and trying to create alternative uh, institutions, uh, alternative structures, because you cannot facilitate socioeconomic networks without having the structures for it. You need the regional platform. So BRICS was such an example where China basically, uh, you know, uh, came together with uh, Russia, with uh, India and uh, Brazil, and then South Africa was also added to, to this, uh, to this uh, platform where they actually wanted to provide uh, a kind of an alternative uh, regional platform for discussion of global uh, issues uh, and uh, international affairs. Of course, uh, the motivation for each of these, of each of these uh, you know, countries was uh, very different. <laughs> but uh, the Chinese idea is, uh, and meanwhile, they have been very successful in facilitating such uh, international organizations uh, that uh, are an alternative to an existent American, you know, American US-led one or, you know, international, international organization in every domain that you could think of. I mean, take finance, take monetary, take energy, take trades, so take uh, economy, you have, you have them everywhere. So yeah, you have also the banks that are very much alternative, like uh, should function as an alternative to, you know, leading American uh, institutions, like take the Asian Bank for Investment, uh, the AIIP, right? Uh, and we have, of course, uh, already an existent example with, uh, a, you know, with the American, uh, with the Asian Development Development uh, Development Bank, which is an American project. Just to give you one idea, okay? So BRICS was nothing less than just an idea how to start facilitating alternatives to um, to American platforms. Uh, where China can set the agenda, of course, with other, you know, important regional uh, actors. I still think that it's an important uh, platform specifically to address, for instance, uh, the, the, the tensions between China and uh, India, which will going to increase uh, in this decade. Uh, but uh, they, for instance, uh, managed to uh, derive from it another, you know, another platform, which is basically a trilateral for format with the foreign ministers of um, India, China and Russia. Okay, so you see also how, uh, how they are already partners being put on the sidelines, you know, and then you have, of course, at the core, you have China and then Russia. And of course, now India is increasingly realizing that um, it's losing ground on these uh, platforms because of the realities on the ground, which are, like I said, increasing uh, likelihood of uh, tensions, uh, military uh, tensions, military conflicts, and even 
hopefully not, but uh, likelihood of a you know, more serious conventional military conflict between the two Asian uh, powers um, in the direct, in the direct uh, neighborhood. So uh, India is also increasingly realizing that Russia is taking quite of a neutral stance and trying to oscillate between them. Of course, on the one side, having very good traditional partnership with India, uh, a lot of uh, business relations selling, I mean, Moscow is selling still a lot of, uh, a lot of arms uh, to, to India, military equipment and so on. On the other side, India realizes that now there is a systemic coordination between, India, between uh, China and uh, Russia, which they do not understand and are very, very much worried about. And um, uh, specifically because it's still not clear where it leads to. Okay, so will it be at some point a systemic coordination also in strategic uh, domains, you know, take military affairs, take um, space, uh, take uh, um, surveillance technologies, there's a lot, there is a lot potential, of a, of a potential. So the dragon bear is, a, is this kind of unknown, unpredictable unknown component in this equation, but for China, uh, this kind of uh, formats, uh, another one is Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where India and Pakistan are already also members. Iran uh, is, uh, has an observatory status. Uh, Central Asian uh, countries are also being part of it, and uh, China is facilitating uh, the organization together with Russia. Um, you see how they are trying to mimic and um, uh, it's... Uh, copy-paste method, like I say, but uh, on the other side, why not? It's a legitimate uh, approach if you see that something works and uh, has been working quite efficiently in the past, uh, like it was the case with uh, US organizations uh, in the leading ones, take the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, then um, uh, move to the, you know, to all these uh, networks, uh, why not? Uh, introducing something alternative where you need to take all, you know, to basically yeah. bring all of these decision makers together to let them know what your agenda is. And this is happening. And by the way, it's also increasingly happening at the level of United Nations yeah. and uh, it's under organizations and it's also being observed now as a phenomenon uh, at the level of the United Nations Security Council. Yeah, exactly. But there's also sort of an argument to be made of China infiltrating some of those established global institutions that are at a higher level than they have previously. But I suppose just to ask that same sort of question, but in a slightly different way, if you take a very large, very macro view of humanity, you can kind of see the sort of balance of power generally seems to have shifted away, following the same patterns as our demography, really. So, you know, we had like the, the sort of Western era, sort of that center of gravity, just at the critical mass of human beings move towards China, it's moving on towards India, and then on to Africa in terms of just, just pure demography, just pure numbers of people and where, where that weight really lies. So I suppose to be taking a bit of a longer view on that, then that the questions do then become India first and then Central Africa second, as to is India likely to be a friend or foe to China's plans going forward? Because you've, you've 
given a couple of examples of both where they are both aligning and showing some signs of conflict. And then further on, Africa. Is Africa friend or foe to the Western or more China-based visions as to, as to where we're heading? When we take those, that sort of chain as to where all the people are going to be and where those sort of critical pivot points of the future come from, which side do you see those two balls bouncing? And obviously it's probably easier to talk about India because their critical mass is coming to the fore a lot faster, like you said, in terms of the economy, in terms of population growth, and all those sort of those very tangible power levers that countries get to play with for a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think India is probably one of the original players that has already taken taking a side, uh, which I think is also very interesting uh, to observe as a phenomenon because during the Cold War, India has been part of the non-alignment movement. It has been a leader of the non-alignment movement, has facilitated it and actually was actually, there was a, as a third option. Uh, now, I think that there won't be a third option, uh, such as uh, oscillating between two uh, system powers. I mean, um, I think that uh, at some point, all relevant regional actors are going to have to take a decision uh, and they are going to have to take a side. And um, so far, we are observing very similar behavior with a lot of relevant regional actors that try to uh, capitalize uh, by playing, uh, playing off uh, the, you know, the two countries, the United States and uh, China, against each other, and basically capitalizing on, on, you know, on both, on both sides uh, by, you know, by making business uh, with China, but then again being a security partner of uh, United States. Uh, for now, from this transitional period, this might, uh, this oscillation, this equidistance, uh, it's not even a strategy. I, I call it a tactic because it's, it, it can be only short-term oriented. You cannot really gain by, by, you know, by applying equidistance, you know, not taking sides. At some point, you run the risk of being squeezed by both for not being loyal to the one and you know, and for you know, not being not being um, predictable for the other. So yeah. uh, this is the case now. For instance, take Turkey. Uh, I mean, in the case of Iran, this is very much a different uh, situation because uh, Iran is absolutely dependent on uh, Chinese uh, uh, Chinese liquidity and uh, yeah. Chinese support. And even it's a very intriguing intriguing uh, situation because. In fact, uh, Russia and uh, Iran are um, our regional rivals, uh, rivals when it comes to uh, energy supply, so when it comes to controlling Syria. Uh, and, and still Russia very much supports Iran because of the, you know, of uh, building a counterweight to the United States uh, dominance in the region and beyond. So you see how fluid uh, these uh, geopolitical considerations are. But Russia is, uh, is, is I think, the, the, the most important case of a, of a, of a new kind of free rider uh, trying to capitalize on its 
you know, immense disruptive uh, power, you know, maximizing, uh, maximizing uh, its uh, quite limited, uh, limited uh, options uh, in various socioeconomic domains and still having a solid, uh, strong card, you know, when it comes to um, reconfigurations, geopolitical reconfigurations. So this is a open question mark still, even though that I have, uh, you know, I have uh, outlined uh, the geo, uh, you know, this geopolitical term, uh, the dragon bear uh, for the last seven years, a kind of systemic coordination between the two countries in, uh, uh, in key uh, fields and domains. I still, uh, I still claim that it's an open question mark. And then you have, so you see that you have both Western partners trying to escalate, and the typical example is also uh, are also the European powers. I mean, uh, the continental European powers, <laughs> uh, to be more specific with you, uh, Germany, France, uh, you know, so-called European Union um, core. Uh, they are also escalating. They are trying to go for this, uh, you know, equidistance approach. Uh, let's yeah. have uh, nice business relations with China. We are the nice uh, European partners. Uh, we will be left alone. We will be not bothered. And uh, at the same time, we are still this, uh, so uh, you know, very, very loyal partner of the United States. It's not going to work out in the long term. Yeah. So um, absolutely no. And the same goes for other uh, South Asian partners, and I think this is the key because you mentioned something very important, and that is how uh, how global power is shifting now. You know, from Euro-Atlantic, uh, from from the Euro-Atlantic realm towards the Indo-Pacific uh, realm, where the most of uh, you know the demographic uh, shifts uh, change. I mean, the growth uh, in terms of uh, demograph uh, demographics, but also in terms of uh, economic power in terms of trade power is going to happen. So there will be a lot of regional partners and we're already observing this phenomenon, right? Uh, uh, where you will find these oscillation strategies uh, because sometimes because out of necessity, because the pressure is too, is too big, you know, when you have a really big Chinese presence in your direct vicinity, you have to be probably more careful, more, you know, tactical. But then again, uh, we will observe a new uh, unimagined before alliances and uh, and partnerships. And I suppose that, uh, like I said, the really most exciting moment, and which is going to be a new moment, is that India is not going to be a no, a no you, you cannot be a third world power and at the same time a leader of non-alignment alignment movement. You will be faced with a reality where you have to take uh, decisions. Uh, and I think that we are going to observe this kind of new uh, American Indian. Uh, okay, it doesn't Tiger. have to be alliance. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And around that, eastern the eastern coast of Africa is going to em emerge yeah. out of yeah. out of this two economic space as you know as a huge as a huge playground for the uh, conflicting interests of external actors. Yeah. But this will create also immense opportunities for this uh, region. And of course, this goes uh, up to uh, South Africa. So that's, that's the big uh, question mark for, uh, you know, for South Africa, how they will forge these regional partnerships in order to prepare for this Indo-Pacific decade.
That's that's a great point to pick up on over there because Africa is is chance to sort of actually influence things in the global geopolitical stage is still coming. At the moment, Africa doesn't have that much bargaining power when you're talking about these very, very big players that we've been speaking about today. But that is going to change further down the line when we start getting towards mid-century when Africa's population is going to be, of course, increasing. Nigeria is going to be taking over as one of the world's most populous countries and all of those sort of those sort of crows come home to roost, so to speak. So this might be a slightly unfair question, but I think it's definitely worth asking, particularly for people who are listening to this call. And that is, what should Africa be thinking about? If you are an African citizen, if you are an African nation state leader, if you are sitting, like you mentioned, on that sort of east coast of Africa, those trade routes where things are going to start getting quite interesting over in the sort of near term, not even the very, very far term, what is the advice that you could give to both citizens and leaders in that region in terms of playing geopolitical cards to set that region up to have more power, influence and control over its own destiny by the time we get to mid-century? What are the sort of questions to avoid and what are the opportunities that could be played right now? I think I mentioned at the beginning of the call that Rona Kapaldis, who does look at this from an African perspective, so geopolitics but Africa-centered, does tend to feel quite strongly that Africa needs to pick its, its, its alliance partners quite carefully now and that the world orders on offer from those two polar opposite views offer very, very different consequences for the continent. And as the African Union is becoming something that might actually happen finally and have some sort of influence, what, what are the choices facing Africa and what, what are the smart choices and what are the, the less smart choices that are going to end up you know, giving away more power than should be given away in the region going forward? Because obviously given Africa's history with colonization and all the rest of it, it is a question on the top of a lot of our minds who live in the continent to see how Africa can have more agency over its own destiny at least, but it would also be nice to have a bit more influence on the, on the global stage. Yeah, that's, um, that's such, a, such an exciting question. And I am so afraid that I might sound cynical due to the fact that I always present this really cold-blooded realpolitik, uh, you know, Go perspective, <laughs> uh, which kind of um, also reflects, uh, uh, um, you know, a division between what I personally perceive and personally have as, uh, you know, values and ideas and what my expertise is, which Give now, objective today <laughs> the expert, I mean, I want to clarify once again, it's only the expert talking right now. So I present mm. you ideas, I present, I present you trends uh, and assessments based on my expertise, not on my personal views and my personal values, okay? So that's very important to say, because what I'm going to say now is very, you know, cynical. Uh, so it's, uh, you mentioned Africa is the youngest continent, but Africa is also the richest continent in the world in terms of natural and mineral resources. And that's not really a good thing because it throws the attention of all, of all literally uh, powers, global and regional ones, that will seize any opportunity, will fill any vacuum they find to place themselves in the game and to, uh, you know, to exploit 
opportunities. So in addition to that, Africa has nearly 600 million hectares of uncultivated arable land. Another bad news, because you understand what this means. This is more than 60% of the global total. And in terms of environmental degradation, which is now even being more and more accelerated by the day, and in terms of climate change, in terms of all this, you know, of all the deterioration of ecosystems, that means a hunger, a hunger for, you know, uncultivated land. Because food, energy, water, this is the oil of the 21st century, okay? Specifically, yeah, real, real resources again. This right? is the real, this is the real game. So this is no good news for Africa. Of course, it would have been good news if Africa has had these strong countries, you know, countries with strong institutions, with, you know, strong state building and good governance and all of this that actually the majority of Af African countries, of course, they are excellent exceptions, but are still ne not there yet. Okay, so to quote, yeah, to quote an African leader, um, I don't remember the name, but uh, maybe our viewers can find it on the internet. But once said that global players will always come, take, and do whatever they want with the resources of Africa, which is unfortunately the cold reality facing this continent, but also it's the way how the world operates and works. So it's Africa is by no means an exception. The, the scale is just different. It's an immense scale. So what I'm looking at um, in this particular case is of course, who controls the natural resources? All global players, regional players, so globally oriented players and regional players are already there. So you take United States, China, Russia, you take European powers, you take the Middle East, Gulf powers, and you take meanwhile, you have, of course, also increasing uh, presence by other Asian powers. India is uh, placing itself already in certain African countries. And, uh, and that's the reality. And this is just the beginning of a new kind of uh, reconfiguration. And scramble, exactly. Then you take the fact, then you take into consideration the fact that uh, the majority of armed conflicts uh, is still very much unfortunate. So armed conflicts, international terrorism, uh, you know, conflicts and tensions uh, linked to uh, military issues um, is taking place on the African continent. And of course, Against this background, anything related to fourth industrial revolution breakthroughs, how to how to ride the wave um, of the fourth industrial revolution from an African perspective, uh, from basically from the perspective from the point of view of an African country, is increasingly complicated, right? So, the good news is that I think that right now. What might, might be an advantage is you don't have to catch up 
with the third industrial revolution. <laughs> so basically, I think I think they're going they're going to skip. <laughs> they're going to some of the countries are going to skip um, some stages of economic development, and they are going to immediately jump on the on, on the new ones. So basically, trying to exploit uh, opportunities of digitalization. And due to the fact that African, as you said, is the youngest continent, that might be a huge potential if there are more bottom-up initiatives, which are dedicated to, uh, you know, um, more engagement with this young population. And if you have the technological tools for that, um, if you use the digitalization advantages, you can actually create new business opportunities for, you know, for broad uh, ranges of uh, young people that are no, you know, don't, don't, do not take uh, place in this classic understanding as we, like I said, uh, we, we saw it from previous industrial uh, revolutions. So that might be an advantage. And I think this is, this is the good news I want to, I want to, um, you know, I want to went, end with, uh, <laughs> um, instead of, uh, you know, leaving a bad taste in your mouth uh, by, you know, being too realistic about certain realities on the ground. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said that this fourth industrial revolution doesn't have quite the same impact on getting people out of poverty and into, you know, the marketplace and the third industrial revolution did just due to the nature of the sort of businesses that are being built and how that we're no longer getting that sort of like diminishing marginal returns. You're actually talking about increasing marginal returns that end up concentrating wealth rather than distributing wealth. It's like that trickle down economics doesn't work quite so well with fourth industrial revolution type business models. I mean, we've seen, I mean, it's just everything is based on economies of scale and network effects. So there are quite big disclaimers there that Africa's coming of age in a very different point in time in history to when China and India and Southeast Asia have been able to do that. A time when the world is moving into a different sort of cycle of the super cycles, both economically speaking and politically speaking, it could set it up for a lot of challenges. But I think that's how we want to have these conversations. We have to understand what is at stake here and just what we are up against. If we're not being realistic about the world order that we're working into, we can't take smart decisions. Foresight does require having a basic understanding of just what the problems are, how big they are, and, and what, what you're going to be coming up against. So I think that you have done a very good job of articulating that. My challenge to people watching this is to not be complacent about this. The world order, whether it is a Beijing consensus or a Washington consensus or an Indian idea of what comes next, is not designed for Africans by Africans. It's not designed for the benefits of the continent. So if we want to have agency, as I said, within the next sort of 50, 60 years, when the sort of center of gravity will be shifted back to the continent, we have to be starting to make foresight to decisions right now. We have to be planning for longer term gains and not for sort of short term wins, which is, of course, hugely challenging when you're dealing with political leaders that have very short term bias, that have very selfish motivations and very weak institutions that actually facilitate graft more than they facilitate, you know, progress in the content, not to be too cynical once again, but I think that if anyone mm. that lives in Africa is quite aware of these short term problems, what people are perhaps not aware about is how these short term problems translate into another century 
or two of being left behind rather than being agents of creating and being participants in whatever the new world order is going to look at. So I have kept you for about an hour today, but I do just want to ask like maybe one more question at the end. So when it comes to the sort of, as I mentioned, the sort of super cycles of history, you have spoken about how we're definitely living in interesting times right now. So it's a great time if you like a bit of chaos, if you like a bit of change, it's not a great time if you're someone that likes things to sort of stay the same. Could you maybe summarize in your view what the cycle that we're moving into is once again, just to sort of close this conversation up to say, what are we moving away from? What are we moving towards? So what is that macro trend period ahead? For, for everyone from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, maybe just because I, I, I skipped one very important component uh, regarding Africa, and I really want to, to be more, to sound more hopeful <laughs> rather than pessimistic and negative. Uh, think also in terms of connectivity, because if you take the example of the European Union, 70% uh, of the European Union trade is actually being conducted within the own borders and due to integ trade economic integration, and it's uh, actually being conducted between direct uh, neighbors. So if you, if you take this example uh, for the African case, more integration, more connectivity projects between African countries, creating more opportunities for trade for trade and, like I said, connectivity projects is such a, such a comprehensive term. You take uh, transport, you take trade, you take um, sustainability, the green corridors, amazing project. So you take all these kind of uh, various, uh, various connectivity ideas, but between uh, and apply them between, uh, you know, on direct uh, neighbors. This creates opportunities. This creates much more opportunities than thinking of globalized, uh, globalized um, trades. You know, trading with uh, with another power that is uh, three thousand miles away. That's just yeah, an idea. Supply and demand. Yes, internal. Yes, that's the resilience. Because you don't get res that's the trade off with globalization. That efficiency yes. versus resilience. In order to build resilient markets, you require a local yeah. consumer and a local supply chain that remains on continent if you want to build deep resilience going forward or any sort of bargaining potential in a global, a global context. I think that people are starting to, to realize that now. I think that's one of the, the few sort of good things to come out of COVID is that people have yeah. understood the importance of local resilience in times of turmoil or interesting times. <laughs> Absolutely. So I wanted really to end with an op optimistic note. And I think that this kind of, you know, this kind of, uh, why not African, why not African quotes? You know, you have had such uh, with also with the Roman Empire. And this is something what European powers are now also trying to revive new connectivities along old Asian roads with uh, specifically Northern Africa, but other parts of Africa have also had uh, the ch their chance, you know, in facilitating digital also connectivities and so on and so forth. Just wanted to really, uh, was really important for me to, 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 you know, to give a kind of a, uh, still optimistic view about the future, despite uh, some harsh realities on the ground. Now, moving to the cycles, we have, um, well, quite a dark picture at the moment uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of cycles. I mean, uh, I mentioned at the beginning the 2000 years uh, cycle, 
a really uh, important one, uh, which uh, outlines and gives us an idea how um, global um, power competition is shifting from which part of the world to which. And right now, obviously, uh, this is the case. Uh, this uh, center of uh, global power is moving towards Indo-Pacific. Region. That's the two year cycle. Now, if you take the 100 year cycle, and uh, just uh, 100 years ago, um, there was a really, really tough uh, time um, for, uh, for, you know, for the international community, for the states, because of, uh, because of the Great Depression, and because of uh, what then ended, uh, eventually in the first, second world wars. And right now, we are also in a similar situation uh, in terms of a cycle where there is already the talk about, uh, about a new Great Depression. Uh, inflation is already appearing. Take food, surging food energy prices. Um, there are unique approaches right now, monetary approaches to stimulate global economy, um, you know, initiated mostly by the Federal Reserve. Um, and also by other central banks. The question is whether this kind of quantitative easing tools are going to really, uh, you know... Help or uh, postpone the inevitable. <laughs> postpone the inevitable, exactly. The fear of hyperinflation, of course, this is something that will hit first and foremost, foremost the um, underdeveloped economies. So... Um, in, you know, emerging economies, basically developing economies. So it's going to start there and then mo moving, you know, with the butterfly effect uh, towards, uh, towards the, you know, developed economies world. And uh, that is why it's going to be felt much, much stronger in these parts of the world where and they are already- it's much more integrated than it was in the, in the 1920s, 100 years ago. So whatever happens yes. is much more systemic these days. It's, and you're not able to insulate yourself. This is the reason why I also said at the beginning that uh, we might witness the first major systemic crisis. I mean, I wanted to stress uh, particularly the fact that the great financial crisis was not a global systemic crisis, was a global structural crisis. But if you look back what happened afterwards, nothing really changed. I mean, uh, the structures remained intact. The too big to fail have become even too bigger to fail. So nothing has changed. So the structures the remain. The same play. First act, same and, play. We're still there. <laughs> and we're still there. But right now, we don't know whether this kind of uh, cycle won't result in a, you know, in a situation. Uh, I mean, history never repeats, uh, it only rhymes. So I'm not uh, claiming that we are going to enter the same uh, scenario of uh, global, of, uh, you know, global war, world war three or something like that. But uh, uh, we have all the ingredients for a major systemic, global systemic crisis. And like you said, due to the, in, uh, to the connectivity of the world, uh, due to the fact that these networks have been interconnected in a in a speed and in a scope unimaginable uh, 100 years ago. Uh, now everything is accelerating, is uh, happening much faster. Then you take the cycle of uh, industrial revolutions. This is another cycle. And you have, uh, like right now, we are in the middle of this fourth industrial revolution. 
we don't know the outcome of it. Uh, if somebody is telling you or is trying to predict uh, who is going to win, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's a, just a lottery because we are really uh, going to find out, I suppose, in the next, uh, I mean, at least in this decade, it's going to, um, to we are going to get a more, 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 more information on the trends and probably a clearer picture where this is heading to. But take space exploration, take, take, uh, take technological breakthroughs in uh, key security and military domains, uh, then take uh, all the cyber physical systems, uh, automation, so artificial intelligence, all of these areas, and you clearly will find out that there are always these kind of two competitors and then uh, regional, regional competitors are also trying to catch up in certain domains, so it's going to be really, really a very close, uh, close um, competition. And then you take the cycle of globalization, the globalization. And right now, I mean, following the great financial crisis, we have been in a situation of a cycle of of, of deglobalization cycle. So it was already prior to uh, COVID nineteen pandemic that the global econom economy was, uh, you know, was in a phase of. Uh, uh, start, you know, slowing down, uh, recessions uh, signs were already uh, there. Uh, the global trade was also in a stagnation phase. So this was actually a cycle that has already been taking place and now has been accelerated also by the uh, pandemic. And you see this now being reflected in the debate on um, global supply chains, right? I mean, the decoupling also of uh, global supply chains. So uh, there will be uh, more, uh, you know, to it, uh, you know, moving away from China, reconfiguring, onshoring. Um, and um, yes, and uh, I think these are the, the, the key, the key uh, dimensions uh, to follow in terms of shifts and um, trends. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. So it's, it all sort of comes down to around about the same time as the 2008 sort of financial crisis. Around about that same time, those three big global trends all seem to sort of reach their maximum point and then sort of start turning the other direction. The three that I refer to that I've spoken about quite a lot would be, of course, sort of free markets or the sort of capitalist project, which is obviously was under strain when, when you have massive global sort of economic crises. That's, that was a sort of inflection point there. The next one being, as you say, globalization has seemed to have pulled back from that point. We have seen more sort of regionalization, more reconfiguring of the global world order. And the third one, which is perhaps the most concerning of all, is the pullback of, of social freedoms and the democracy project at large. So we've seen the sort of reversals in trends as sort of free governments across the world, more concentration of power in fewer hands, more totalism. Even in the West, this is not a course of sort of standalone sort of critique of any one particular country. And I think that the last year, what we've all seen with COVID have just accelerated all three of those trends and have brought us to sort of a, another point in the cycle of which we're going to see another infliction bounce off in some other direction into a, as you said, a, an interesting future ahead as those three, those three threads intertwine and bend in new directions once again. But as you say, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does, it does have quite a, quite a rhythm section going on. And there are patterns that we can follow and there are directions that we can follow from here to there. So I think it is important for people to understand that 
things like the, the, the end of history are not, are not exactly an end. It's just an end of a particular era. And we are definitely heading towards some sort of a new era for better or for worse. And hopefully people that are listening to this call today understand a little bit more about the stakes in play, the players in play, and the directions we're tending towards. Of course, none of this is inevitable. There are an awful lot of wild cards on the table. We've spoken briefly about Russia and India and even Europe, all of which can pull certain strings that can tip the balance in certain directions. And Africa should not count itself out of this. I think Africa as we've alluded to, needs to understand its own longer term strength and to get organized so that it can become more of an influencer as to what the new world order, the next set of patterns is going to look like. But I just want to thank you so much for your time today. If you've got any more closing words, otherwise I will let you go and get on with, with your day because I've definitely kept you over time. <laughs> No, absolutely. I'm really delighted that we could uh, actually cover um, most of uh, most of uh, the really uh, significant uh, trends and uh, phenomena uh, in around an hour, which is uh, quite a challenge <laughs> for such uh, topics. Um, I want to draw your attention once again to one specific uh, one specific uh, process that I'm observing very, very closely, and that is the disconnection between, uh, you know, between uh, regional, so basically between state actors. Now let's, uh, let, let's leave the scale aside. Uh, state actors, when it comes to connectivity projects. So once they start alienate themselves, don't see incentives in cooperating uh, together on, um, you know, infrastructure projects take, transport, energy, whatsoever, uh, that's a signal, that's a really wor worrisome signal uh, that might, you know, tell something about the, you know, the, 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 the global affairs. So we should very much pay attention at, at, as, as to how this kind of connectivity uh, processes are now going on. Uh, you know, my optimistic scenario is how I want to end uh, this conversation. My optimistic scenario is that uh, the incentive to go into war, into a direct military conflict, which was the case prior to the First World War, basically because the rivaling powers didn't see any more incentives into, you know, into engaging with each other on connectivity projects, railroads. I mean, that, uh, during that time, it was about railroad projects. Um, and right now, my optimistic scenario is that uh, the incentives to go into a direct com uh, confrontation, military confrontation, are really low, thankfully, to the fact that uh, most, most of the states are in a similar situation due to the pandemic. So they uh, basically agree on a kind of a systemic coexistence. And this systemic coexistence would be facilitated by alternative networks. So they decide to build their own connectivities, which are alternative worlds. And we will probably face a situation where we will have two, two alternative worlds. And you mentioned surveillance. Uh, at some point, the countries will have really to decide whether they can, uh, they can go along with this kind of uh, you know, state surveillance and uh, you know, societal surveillance at global scale. Uh, or, you know, fight back, 
So I think that this is the optimistic scenario, systemic coexistence, alliance of democracies, like-minded countries, facilitating their own connectivities, you know, infrastructures mm. uh, with like-minded partners, alliances, and then you, you have, you know, totalitarian, authoritarian regimes that uh, do not see these incentives, you know, they need still to control their own population and they have the incentive of building alternative, uh, you know, networks. Yeah, exactly. And we haven't even touched on the sort of the, the, the geopolitics of, of cyberspace as we start talking about the metaverse, but that's a whole nother topic of conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very, very interesting, the whole sort of connection of the medium and message layer of the world and how, you know, technology is becoming a, a super governance that is not, you know, beholden to any sort of geopolitical borders, but that is a different layer on the, on the playboard. So we, we, won't, we won't dive into that today. But what I am going to ask you is if people do want to engage with you, if they want to work with you, where can they find you? How can they get in touch? Oh, thanks. Uh, so for anyone who is interested uh, in my work or in my analysis assessments, uh, you can easily find me on uh, Twitter um, and uh, you will get there also all information. Uh, you can also find me uh, on my, uh, so I have my personal webpage, which, which is belinachakarova.com. And also you can find me on the, on my professional webpage uh, of my institute, Austrian Institute for European Security Policy, which is AIS.at. Uh, so I'm really uh, easily to be found. And uh, I would like to use the opportunity to, to draw your attention to my um, latest publication, which might be also interesting for, for, for the audience, because I deal with the question, is, uh, is a Cold War uh, 2.0 inevitable? I won't give you the answers. You have to, you have to uh, read uh, the paper. Uh, and you can find it also on Twitter, or you can find it actually uh, at uh, the webpage of uh, ORF Online, which is the biggest think tank, uh, Observer Research Foundation is the biggest Indian think tank. And right now they are organizing the biggest uh, global event with a lot of stakeholders. And they have the Ricina files there where this publication has been published. And aren't you also launching a course pretty soon on a, a, a web-based course, also dealing with some of these issues? Well, I wanted to remain very modest and not occupy this space oh, by self-advertisement. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I'm, I have developed the idea to make this kind of um, analysis uh, more, more available to everyone who is just interested in these topics. So there is no need for you know, advanced knowledge or any preparations. And I'm launching now a monthly geopolitics class, which is uh, digital, uh, it's going to take place uh, in my digital room. Uh, and uh, it starts on the 26th of April at 8 p.m. Central European time, which is also South African time, or 2 p which is 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Uh, if uh, you want to subscribe, it's really absolutely uh, affordable to everyone. So students um, uh, from all over the world should have also the possibility and opportunity to get in touch if they want to uh, attend the course. And in, uh, in this uh, two hour session, we are going to uh, discuss all these topics that we have discussed with you in the last uh, 70 minutes. Uh, yeah. or I think even longer, um, and address all these issues, uh, and it's going to take place once a month. 
That's absolutely fantastic because that's that's the whole point of why we have these conversations is to get more people engaged with the decisions and the big ideas that are shaping the world around us because all too often these conversations are had behind very closed doors and not even in public domain at all. But thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to end this call and we will definitely stay in touch. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for the wonderful questions and for the opportunity to discuss with you also, uh, all these uh, relevant uh, trends. And uh, good luck to your really amazing uh, um, platform. Thank you.